let me go through some of the, this uh, background on the goals and purpose. It is an in-depth study of the book of Colossians, and you think, wow, 17 weeks on the book of Colossians. Well, when we talked about picking a book, we really concluded that we could easily expand this into a 17-week study, especially the way we're doing the study. Um, but why did we pick Colossians? Well, we think there's an awful lot of relevance to, of Colossians to us and our needs. Um, it reveals, in some ways, first of all, it exposes what's going on in our world today and in Christianity and in the church today. Some of the things that the Colossian church was struggling with, the Christian church today is struggling with, and it, and it will address a lot of those points. And it reveals the most important point of all, the source of all of our life, our spiritual life, which is Christ and the gospel. And it really addresses uh, many of the points that we as believers today that are still relevant to us as believers today. And we know the enemy out there wants to confuse and conceal truth. And uh, in many ways, Paul expresses what is real truth in this book and points out some of the concerns. While not criticizing the Colossians, he addresses the points that are important for them and where he saw them going. And we're going to come back to a little bit about that when we talk about the, the Colossian church that he uh, wrote to. It does warn about deceptive worldly wisdom. We, sh we certainly are facing that today that kind of thing that turns us away from real truth. And there's just a lot of practical application. Some of the things that we saw here, too, is it helps identify needs uh, of other people, how to uh, address those needs through prayer and actual action. So there's just so much practical application all along the way in the book of Colossians also. And each teacher, as they go through sections, are going to be able to expand uh, upon some of the doctrinal issues that are addressed. And, and every week we're going to try to apply doctrinal issue to what our needs are and, uh, and really the kinds of things God is looking for us to do as Christians. Another thing we're going to do is we want to use this study through Colossians to help us learn better ways to study the Bible. We're going to look at the principles. We're going to use them. We're not going to just identify them. We're going to actually be using those principles and tools and techniques. And so you're going to learn how to study the Bible better, too. We're not going to just study Colossians. We're hopefully going to come away from this with some better study habits. And then each week in this series, there will be a teaching time, maybe a little bit of interaction in the teaching time, uh, um, <clears throat> keyword study studies is going to be big, at least for sure, in my lessons. We're going to look at those words that are really important for us to understand meaning. And we're going to uh, not do in-depth word studies every time, but we're going to make it sh sure that we understand the meaning of keywords. The group discussions, as we talked about, there's going to be an application time which may be weaved throughout, or it may be a special application time at the end, and then we're always going to try to have a summarize uh, and wrap up at the end. So that's the format, and we're hoping we're going to hit the mark on this. We're hoping that this way of uh, 
Sunday school class, Bible study, we hope it hits the mark. And by that I mean I hope it not only is accurate in terms of our teaching, but that it hits the mark as to what we in Lion and Lamb need the most. What can we benefit the most by? So we'll still look for feedback from you, whether you give it to me, another leader or teacher. Um, we want to hit the mark. So if you think there's something we could do a little different, a little better, tell us. We'll, we get together about monthly or every other month at least to talk about how we're doing in teaching and other things that, that we're involved with. And um, if we get feedback, we give it to each other, but we'd welcome your feedback as well. Now, I'm not going to spend time a lot on all these uh, biblical principles, this biblical hermeneutics or the art and science of studying the Bible, but we're going to try to follow these. This is listed in your book. Um, I'm not sure which page number that is, but uh, it is in there. 11. Yeah, this is, starts on page 11. I'm not going to go through all these and try to explain what all of them are, but the key point that I want to make is that we are going to try to follow as we teach, as we interpret. We're going to try to follow these kinds of principles the best we can. And, you know, the main, let's look at this, the first one. Biblical interpretation has to be based on the author's intended meaning, but within the context of who he's speaking to, who his audience is, and everything else. There's a lot of things we could talk about here. You've probably heard a little bit of teaching on that here in the past. But for now, I'm just letting you know this is our goal, is to interpret the Bible as accurately as we can. Bible study tools. This is something we will be using as we go through this series of lessons. This is actually on page 13 of the book. These are listed, so you don't have to worry about having these as a resource. But each week, our teachers will be using these. In your discussion time, where we break out, when we really are getting into uh, looking at the passages and the verses, you could use some of these right in your little discussion group. You know, some of these are web-based. A lot of you have a phone that you can just look something up quickly. Um, you could even look up some of these things that are on here on your phone, and you don't have to go to the big book that you may have at home or, or somewhere else. But each week, teachers will use tools, and we would encourage you to use tools like these. I will... Um, I don't know, is there anything on that list that, 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 is, that you're unfamiliar with, that you've never heard of? They're all pretty well-known, but as we study the Bible, we all should have tools like this handy to help us as we study. The Bible is, yes, our source of truth, but there are helps, and these would be considered those kind of helps that we would have where we could take advantage of what someone else has put together for us to be able to understand better as, as we do. And, and again, we, we'll come to a lot of these. And uh, this morning, we probably won't get much into it because this is uh, what you're using when you're 
actually studying the text. Word studies, I want to emphasize a little bit. I, I consider that not a tool, but a technique of studying the Bible. And, and word studies, we, as we planned this, we thought was one of the more important things that we would be wanting to look at. And um, when you do a word study, you probably have been involved in some type of word studies in the past, but you identify some key word because to understand the text, you've got to understand the meaning, perhaps, of a key word. And um, when you start the study, you might go straight to online resources because a lot of those tools that we just saw on the previous slide are available online, or you can go to a, a book. Online resources are, are great, and you probably have taken advantage of those in the past already. It's, it's so convenient. Uh, Bible dictionaries. How many of you have a Bible dictionary? Not the one in the back of your Bible. A true Bible dictionary. Does anybody here have them? You ever use them? <laughs> yeah. Um, they are really helpful because they present the definition of the word usually with respect to how it is used. Often a Bible dictionary is a Bible dictionary for a given translation of the Bible. Um, has any of you ever gone back to the original Greek or Hebrew to try to understand a word better? To these lexicons. Um, that is something that I think throughout this study we will do. We want to go back to, to that. Uh, we identify how that word has been used in the Bible elsewhere. Where do we go to, to find all the uses for a word? In, I mean, all the times a word is used. What's the tool? The concordance. Yeah, you, now you can have an exhaustive concordance that, that lists every single word, every single time it's used. Or you can have a more, uh, I mean, the back of a lot of Bibles have a concordance, and they vary in, uh, in terms of, of the amount of information that is presented. But I find concordances really valuable to see whether a word is um, perhaps used in different ways, in different uh, contexts. And then you've got to really compare historical meaning with modern meaning. And there's more can be said about word studies, but that will be something that, that we spend some time on. And here's some key words and themes in Colossians. For sure, it's not all of the key words. And there's lots more. In fact, a key word to one person may not be exactly the same that another person would say is one they want to emphasize. But here... Here are some key words that we will be talking about at one, one week or another week. And, uh, for example, next week, you saw the word that was highlighted with the little magnifying glass on the previous slide. I highlighted fruit. Well, next week, uh, it, the first real lesson that we get to in the text, um, I'll still be teaching. And fruit is one of the words that we're really going to look at next week. But you could see some other ones that are important. And you may say, ah, I think there's some that are, that are important in addition to that, that we really ought to be sure we understand what they mean. We're going to try to identify uh, and avoid interpretive errors. And this cartoon where the kid is saying, don't bother me, I'm looking for a verse of scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. You know, that is pretty common that people have an idea 
and they want to argue it with somebody else, and they go and look for the verse that can support their position. And then here, aha, I found it. Matthew 7, 1, do not judge. And that's an example of how someone didn't want either to be judged or to have someone judge another idea, behavior, whatever it may be. And so he needed to find the verse to support his position that he doesn't want that judgment to be taking place. So you take it out of context. Again, this is something that um, I'm not going to go through them all, but on page 12 of the booklet, common interpretive errors within the church. And there's types of uh, interpretive errors, and there are examples that are given of verses that are often uh, misinterpreted, taken out of context, misused, abused, whichever you want. And we're going to not only try to avoid that, we're going to probably point out some as we go through the text. Now, <clears throat> I already said one technique to study the Bible is word studies. So that's the first one listed here. And see that we got principles, we got tools, we got techniques. When you study the Bible, they're all a little bit different. They all work together to help us study it the best we can. So for techniques, some of the other techniques that we may be using from week to week or that you may wish to use, you might want to outline a passage. I remember one of the first home groups that I was in here in Topeka, a guy named Dave Schneider. Anybody know Dave Schneider? I was in a home group with him, and uh, he liked at least, this didn't last a long time, but some of those early ones, he liked to outline the passage. And his outline of the passage would be to like put some words here and then other ones under that, other ones under that. And that's helpful to some people, to outline in whatever way helps. Comparing different Bible translations, that's important. We've got ESV shown in here. If any of you have other Bible translations, bring them. And at times when we're discussing the detailed package, I mean passages, say, well, my translation uses different words. I was in a, uh, I kind of led a Bible study for about 15 years in work, and everybody brought their own Bible, and everybody had a different translation, it seemed like. Ten people, ten translations almost seemed like we had. And you know what? That was really helpful at times to go and see how one translation said something a little different from one another. So that is a different technique. So it's kind of, I would recommend that maybe you have uh, more than one translation in your home, and sometimes you look at the other translations. Underlining, highlighting, like I said, that's why we put it in here. You may want to mark it up a lot rather than your own Bible marked up in, the, in, in a detailed study like this. Pray about what you have read. It's, and then you've got meditating. Prayer, meditation, they kind of go together. Um, show of hands again. Does anybody ever pray before you read the Bible? Before. 
good. That's really good. I didn't expect so many hands to go up. Because you know what? When we enter into reading the Bible and our mind is not centered on God, there's a good chance that we're going to miss a whole lot of what he's trying to tell us in his word. So pray before, during, right in the middle of reading, and after. Prayer goes hand in hand with study of the Bible. Meditating also uh, on the scripture. Just taking time, go over it again and again in your mind and try to see what it is God is trying to tell us in that. Uh, That, as as I say, goes hand in hand with the prayer. Memorizing. We, We have our kids memorize. Again, show of hands. Is any adults in this room in the process of doing any Bible memorization? A lot fewer hands, but we have a few. That's still not just for kids. That is for all of us to some degree. And then write, this is something that some Bible studies will even have you do. Write out the meaning of a verse or passage in your own words. Especially one that uh, you're struggling a little bit with its meaning. That could be helpful. And there are other techniques. Okay, discussion time number one. Ten minutes. We got areas that are set up. Nobody's sort of sitting that way. One minute to get to these spots or turn or whatever you want. But here is the first discussion time. Again, we're not into the text, so I apologize for that. This first discussion time is when you study the Bible, which study tools and techniques do you most often use? How have these tools been valuable to you? Share with others how it has helped you. And do you use different tools and different kinds of techniques and things depending on what you're doing with the Bible at the time? You know, you have a time of a quiet time compared to true trying to study to prepare for something. Um, But share with one another what works for you and what you're comfortable with. It's 9.25 just about. At uh, 9.35, we'll get back assembled. So please set yourselves up and... Can you hear? Yeah. Um, you can either, those of you who's back or facing me, if you uh, either want to quickly move or just turn your chair and we'll just turn them at the end of Sunday school back to the, the setup we need for the service, that's fine. Uh, but we're going to go ahead. Um, sound like a lot of good discussion going on. I, I hope that you think that was about the right amount of time for a topic about that much. Um, this won't be the same every time. Sometimes uh, a teacher may think we need more time for the discussion groups to talk on a topic. Uh, that could vary from week to week. Okay, we're going to go on now to the part two of this lesson, which is who were the Colossians? A little bit more about them and the background to help us with the book. You see a map up there. You see where, and and I I believe I'm pronouncing this right, Colossae. I, I put it in one of those computer things, and that's the way they said it, Colossae. 
Does anybody want to challenge that? (laughs) Colossae is the way that I believe it's pronounced. And you can see where that is in present-day Turkey. And we'll, we'll zoom in a little bit more and learn a little bit more about it. There's a couple maps in your book that also show this location. An interesting thing, this map shows Paul's third missionary journey, and a a very interesting aspect of this is Paul never visited this city. Unlike a lot of the cities that he wrote letters to, he never visited this one. So there's where it is. You can see what it's surrounded by. This is what it looks like there. Looks like a nice setting, doesn't it? Uh, It's that city at the base of that mountains, mountain range. Those mountains look higher. I was just at Estes Park last week, Rocky Mountain National Park, and they look almost as high as those big mountains, but yet that's the best I can determine is they are uh, all less than 10,000 feet, and the mountain uh, that is the biggest one that I could identify nearby was only about 8,300 feet high. A little more about the city. This kind of zooms in on a part of it. There is little archaeological study that was ever done of Colossae. They've had multiple earthquakes and volcanoes, even since the period of Christ, New Testament time. They have not excavated the kinds of ruins that we like to see. And I have a slide coming up in a minute that shows you the ruins from some of the cities nearby uh, that we can find. But there is very little that you can go look at or that has been identified for this city. Uh, it is in a valley. Even in old old type days, they produced wool, black wool, in this valley. It's a river there called the Lycus River, runs through that valley. And there's some other cities there that are, you're familiar with, Laodicea, Philadelphia. You hear of those in uh, the letters to the churches in the early chapters of Revelation. Maybe those other cities you're not as familiar with, but that is a zoomed-in view. Here are some pictures of those ruins, and this one, Hierapolis or Opolis, I'm not positive of the pronunciation of that one, but they do have excavations of that city that was sort of near Colossae. Um, But some of these things have been unearthed through archaeological studies and digs and and things. So um, we can only assume that there was some similar stuff at Colossae. And uh, some of the references that I looked at indicated that Colossae was a much bigger city in the ancient days that preceded even the New Testament times. Uh, And it became less important as time went on as some of those other cities grew in importance. From this Hierapolis, uh, 20 miles from Colossae, they had this big amphitheater. Uh, Kinds of things we're more familiar with seeing in Greece, like around Corinth. But that's where this one actually exists today. Uh, Again, was there anything like this in Colossae? I don't know, but it was pretty close to there. So we kind of get an idea of what the culture was like from some of these things that we're looking at. You may know of a, a person named Antiochus III. There were, uh, this is the intertestament period. I won't go into any history there right now, 
But to give you an idea of people who were living in Colossae, it was mainly a Gentile population. But there is a record from Josephus, who is that first century historian, that says uh, that in about 100 BC, 2,000 Jews from Babylon uh, were sent to Colossae. So we know there were Jews mixed with Gentiles. A little background on the book of Colossians. There was definitely a church. That church was founded by Epaphras. Yes? Is this still a church or a synagogue uh, worshiping in Colossae? I don't know, Larry. I just don't. I, I didn't uh, try to find out the current status of the church in Colossae. I, I couldn't. Every reference I looked at did not mention that. If anybody else has anything to to contribute, I don't know. It's modern day Turkey, and I don't think there is. Okay. Okay. That's probably accurate, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure. Epaphras, we see his name show up multiple places in Scripture. During some of the lessons for this whole series, we'll get more into him and people who are leading those will talk about that. But for now, let's just say that church was founded by him. He was a disciple of Paul. Paul referred to him as a faithful minister of Christ. And, um, and again, more will be said about him in, in subsequent weeks. Again, the church at Colossae probably consisted of mostly Gentiles with some Jews, and the Jews may have been influencing what was going on in the teaching. And we know sometimes that that can be damaging, okay? And that'll also come up, trying to incorporate some of the old Jewish ways into uh, the newer teaching, the new covenant. The author, Paul, the genre or the type of writing that it is, it is an epistle, which is a letter to the local church, and the date written, best estimates, 60 to 62 A.D., written from the prison in Rome. And we're going to look at that in just a minute to have a better idea of why we think it was written from there. There are some who would argue that it wasn't really written from there. It was written from Ephesus and written earlier when Paul was in Ephesus. But I, there aren't a lot of people supporting that idea. Most everyone believes that it is a good uh, conclusion that it was written by Paul from his prison when he was in prison in Rome. Yes? Uh, just for people like me that are wondering if this is in the book and wanting to copy it all down, it's the tan pages in the back. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, this is in the handout, in the tan pages. Okay? After all the yeah, you wouldn't need to rewrite or try to write these down quick because it's not part of the there's going to be a whole lot of information presented throughout this in the handouts that is not in the original, like, 10 pages or 13 pages. And it was delivered by a guy, and this one I looked up pronunciation too, Tychicus, not Tychicus, Tychicus. And his name will come up in further studies as well. He delivered the letter from Paul to the church. And he was referred to as a dear brother, faithful servant, and he did accompany Paul on his third missionary journey. 
So these are some names we're not that familiar with. They're people who we haven't heard a lot about ever, but they played very key roles, not only to support Paul and be a companion at different times, but also to accomplish certain of his purposes and to help this church in Colossae. And more than that, too. So uh, that's a little bit more background. Evidence that he wrote from the prison in Rome, and I'm not going to, again, don't have time to go into the details. We know Paul went before Felix and Festus, who were governors of Roman uh, areas, and then King Agrippa. He had all these cases where he uh, appealed ultimately to Caesar. And what did they do? We know from Acts they sent him to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. And while there, we have other evidence in Scripture that he had freedoms. He had certain freedoms to do things while he was in Rome. He wasn't in a dungeon the way that we might think of being in prison. He could write his letters. He had companions. He could interact with some people. He could get messages. He could give messages while he was there. And um, again, another place just where uh, Epaphras shows up, Philemon, verse 24, he referred to Epaphras at the end of that short book as his fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. So Epaphras, though he founded the church at Colossae, he is not the one who took the letter back. Tychicus did. Epaphras, I don't know what his ultimate outcome in life was, but he was with Paul at that time in Rome in, as a prisoner. Okay, the purpose. I've already just touched very briefly on a little bit of this. There was a perceived, from the message that Paul had received, that there was some dangerous heresy and possibly pagan practices that were threatening the church at Colossae. Most of those, I believe, because of the emphasis of the book of Colossians, dealt with the deity, supremacy, and sufficiency of Christ, and they were not being properly taught, either confusion or, or outright heresy, I'm not sure. And there was confusion regarding what it means to be a believer in Christ. Some ceremonial rituals were... Um, whether Jewish or pagan in nature, were being encouraged and adopted. Angel worship was addressed in the book, so it was probably going on. And, and for sure, human wisdom and philosophy were taking the place of godly wisdom. And we'll see that addressed also in a couple follow-up lessons. So these are things that could all be addressed in our church today, to some degree, things that we struggle with. Okay, exercise number two, <clears throat> 10 minutes. Imagine you were a teacher or a leader in a church somewhere. And you got to put yourself in that position. You moved now to Lion and Lamb. You're attending here. But you still have friends. It's a different city, this old church. You have friends and family who are still attending that church. They contacted you with concerns that new leadership in that church is possibly leading the church astray by teaching Heresy, including some of these kind of things. Jesus is not the only way to salvation. God loves us so much he wouldn't send anyone to hell. And homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle 
among other things possibly. False teaching is going on in that church. You used to be in leadership teaching. What should you do or what would you do? Is there a responsibility to the person who has left and sees that this is going on and people you love and care about are being affected by it? So go ahead, get back in your groups, talk about it, and uh, decide what you think your responsibility would be under that circumstance. go and we've got a little bit more to talk about and we'll be able to wrap it up in that time. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if your groups thought the best thing to do is just tell your friends and family to get out and leave versus trying to correct what was going on in that church. How, how many of you emphasize just get, get your friends and family out of the church? Nobody? Good. <laughs> But I was wondering whether people went there or not. Okay, uh, there's not a, because we didn't study passages today, it's hard to uh, say what the most relevant application is, but there are a few things we've got here. First of all, let's look forward to studying Colossians, because why? The number one value I see in the book is that it affirms the proper view of Christ Jesus. That's what that book does for us. And... There's nothing more important to us than to have a proper view through and through completely of that. And this will affirm that. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, who most of you probably know who he is, radio personality and, and other things, said, your view of Jesus Christ will impact every area of your life because Jesus is Lord over all. The life of the Christian should be a life of submission to Jesus. Our faith in Jesus Christ should transform our relationship and every area of our lives. That kind of puts it in a good summary statement of how we should be looking at it. And this book will help us with that as we study it in detail. Okay, I'm going to just recommend to everybody as sort of a homework is to read chapter 1 of Colossians this week, even though we're only going to study the very beginning of that next week, uh, to prepare just for, for what we're going to do. It's a very short reading, but, but go ahead and do that if you would. And, and with respect to just studying the Bible, organize your study tools. Know what you have. Know where they are. Know what you need. Are there some things you don't have right now that would be helpful? If so, try to obtain them. Know where to find them online. All those kind of things. And if you do, then establish these online bookmarks. Make it easy on yourself when you want to use some good bookmarked uh, resource. Make it a favorite, make it a bookmark, whatever easy way you can get to it. And then identify apps and other things that are helpful. Again, emphasis on online stuff, which uh, supplements or adds to what you have perhaps in, in book form or other things. Uh, recommend that in your Bible study time this week that you use at least one new Bible study tool that you don't normally use. Try to find one and use it in some way or a technique or something. And remember to bring your booklet each week. It's very important that, uh, that you do. We're not going to keep producing these. We may have a few extras for people who weren't here today, but, but bring your booklet back, write your name in it. So if it gets left behind, we know whose it is, okay? And um, 
Next week, we're going to be looking at only eight verses, the intro, a thing that people often skim by real quick. You know, you read the intro, oh, you know, let me get to the real good stuff. I got to get by that. Well, you're going to see next week that these first eight verses of this book are loaded with information that is helpful to us and edifying, and uh, we'll be looking into that. One, the title of next week is Faith in the True Gospel Yields Good Fruit. And faith, belief, fruit. And so we'll be using, that'll be one of the main points we look at next, next week, along with other things that are in those first eight verses. Okay, let's end with prayer and we'll get prepared to go on and meet kids from downstairs. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. This morning, thank you that you have given us your word, that we can know you better, that we can be drawn closer to you, that we can know real truth and not let the worldly wisdom of the, that's around us confuse us. Help us to spend time in your word. Help us to learn the best ways to study your word and help us to use those techniques every day that we're uh, alive, just that we can uh, take advantage of your word, that we can mine it and get everything out of it that is there that you have for us. Prepare our hearts and minds for the service that's coming up and uh, pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in all that teaching, the leading of worship, the Lord's table, everything that's coming up, Lord. You, we look to you to guide and lead, and we pray that our hearts and minds would draw closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.